Um, so let me introduce the uh, St Luke carolers. Um, uh, on, on Sundays we sing at St Luke's Chelsea and then um, in December we, a, a group of us form the St Luke's carolers for uh, this Gresham event. Um, it is of course today is a historically terribly important day as we all know it's the sixth annual Gresham Christmas Carol Lecture. <laughs> what I'll try um, to convince you of uh, over the next few minutes is that 1928 was by far and away the most important year in the 20th century for the Christmas Carol. Uh, you could, I'll, I'll hear your 1918, which was the first Nine Lessons and Carols from Kings, important year. 1954, the first televised uh, broadcast of uh, King's College, Cambridge. Um, 1961, Carol Sequire's book one, The Green Book, important year. It happens to be my year of my birth as well. 1970, uh, The Orange Book, Carol Sequire's two. Uh, and 1983, the first King's College uh, commission by a new composer. All those are important dates, but I hope to convince you that 1928 is, for two very important reasons, the most significant year in the history of caroling in the 20th century. I left you last year, those of you that were here, I left you last year in the chapel of King's College, Cambridge in 1918 on Christmas Eve. And indeed, this time last year, uh, we all received a collective Christmas present from the Rowe Library in King's College, Cambridge, and that was the 1918 Order of Service, which was put online uh, a year ago. Brilliantly, they put it on uh, on the morning of uh, my lecture, so we had it online um, by then. It, uh, I like to think that they did it on purpose and they were thinking about it, but I suspect it may just have been a coincidence, but it was a jolly helpful one. So that is online for you to look at. If you go to the King's College Cambridge website, you can see in all its glory the 1918 Order of Service, and it is a beautiful, beautiful record of an historic event. Um, as we've rehearsed before, the Nine Lessons service was devised in 1880 at Truro Cathedral by Bishop Benson, who'd uh, been made bishop uh, two years before that. Uh, before uh, it, was, uh, it, it was a bishopric, it was the archdeaconry of Cornwall, and then that became the new diocese of Truro. Benson was appointed to that and within a few years had become Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, but his real gift to Truro, apart from founding a school, um, was uh, to uh, inaugurate his festal service for Christmas Eve, Nine Lessons with Carols. And, and notice that um, uh, it's Nine Lessons with Carols in the Truro template. The Truro Carol Service as you can see there, had introduced these sentences, uh, what Benson referred to as benedictions, before each reading. So you can see here, before the ninth reading, for instance, unto the fellowship of the citizens above, may the king of angels bring us all. And uh, I think the real innovation of the Truro service, apart from the nine lessons, which was a medieval uh, practice, which Benson reinvented, uh, were the fact that the nine readings went in order of seniority, starting with a chorister and going all the way up to bishop. 
and that format was copied in 1918 by King's College Cambridge, which went, yes, from Chorister, but rather than the bishop, to the provost of the college. And the service built to its climax, which was the Magnificat, which is no longer part uh, of this service. And also it's in uh, language that might be unfamiliar to you. No longer is this, my soul doth magnify the Lord, as you might expect now. But this is the old 16th century metrical setting of the Magnificat. Uh, it's taken from Sternhold and Hopkins. Uh, they're the whole book of Psalms collected into English metre, and that metre, as you can see, is mostly double common metre, in other words, 6868 repeated. But that's the Magnificat according to the Sternhold and Hopkins Psalter. Now, in 1918, at this King's College service, this crescendo towards this high point, it was marked, first of all, by the choir walking through the congregation, leaving the congregation to sing a hymn on their own, while the choir then lined up in front of the altar and sung this set piece. Now, this set piece was not the set piece that had been sung at Truro. This set piece was actually specifically commissioned for this service. Charles Wood is the composer. He was um, a fellow down, uh, uh, down in uh, Gonville and Keyes College. Uh, so essentially the next-door college to King's, he was commissioned to write a Magnificat for that 1918 service. So I suppose this piece, this Magnificat, has, uh, uh, ha can claim to be the very first commission for the King's College choir um, carol service uh, the, in 1918. Uh, and we'll, um, we'll sing you a passage, just a small passage from it, uh, and it's this, uh, what you would normally uh, think of as he remembering his mercy hath holpen his servant Israel in this uh, version and calling to remembrance his mercy every deal. But anyway, this is, uh, as I say, can lay claim to be the first King's College carol service commission, which is from 1918.
it is a, a truly stunning piece. Um, and that was the last item, the last choir item in the 1918 service, as I say, sung from in front of the altar, the choir, as a set piece, that rhymed uh, metrical version of the Magnificat, written by Charles Wood specifically for the event. Now, the 1918 carol service began like this. We've been through this before. Not that. Not once in royal. It starts like this. <laughs> ding dong ding, ding a dong a ding, ding dong ding dong, ding a dong ding. Which is a great way to start a carol service, except what may not be obvious is that actually was a major break with tradition. How so? Since 1918 was the first service of nine lessons and carols. Well, because there had been something going on on Christmas Eve in King's College, Cambridge, before the carol service was instituted. And what that was, was essentially a Christmas Eve evensong with a processional carol at the start, two carols instead of an anthem that related to Christmas. And guess what? That processional carol at the beginning of these evensongs that went right back to the 19th century was indeed once in royal. So by starting with Charles Wood's Ding Dong, Ding a Dong Ding, they were actually breaking with the tradition, and that's not, not, not always um, understood, I think. Um, and we know this, a beautiful description of it by M.R. Um, James. M.R. James, you may know as the writer of ghost stories. Well, in his spare time, he was provost of kings and uh, provost of Eton thereafter. But as I say, his day job, I like to think of, was writing ghost stories. But anyway, he, here he is with his reflections from... Uh, Eaton and from Kings of describing how <coughs> Christmas Eve was before the carol service. And I think you'll find it's remarkably like we expect now. A faint musical hum was heard of the choir taking up the note. And then it seemed to give the very spirit of Christmas. The boys broke quite softly into Once in Royal David's City and began moving eastward. With the second verse, the men joined in. I declare I don't know what's moved me more than this did and still does when I recall it. And that is for many, many years before the institution of the King's Carol Service. I say what is remarkable, the change, was that in 1918 they decided not to. Only for that one year, but they decided not to. And they, start, they decided to start with Charles Wood's bubbly ding-dong, ding-a-dong, ding. Uh, it only lasted for one year and then they, quite rightly in my opinion, went, returned to the tradition that they'd set up before that. So the point is that the 1918 service at King's had two precursors. One was the Nine Lessons with Carols from Truro, and the other was its own Christmas Eve celebration, which had been this enhanced evensong for Christmas. And those two things came together, initially, I think, slightly unhappily in uh, 1918, but uh, when they had time to think about it, as you do after you've done something for the first time, uh, they came up with uh, 1919's um, format, and that was uh, to excise the Magnificat altogether. Now, I think that probably makes sense in terms of the shape of the service. It no longer has any connection with Evensong. What is a shame is it meant that you lose that wonderful Charles Wood setting that had been written for them that was never heard again. And I'm, I'm sorry to say that most singers don't know it still. It's not done in our cathedrals, and I do not understand why, because I think it's a, a wonderful... Well, uh, 
at St Luke's Chelsea. We've started to introduce it into our carol services and we hope that others may follow because I think it is a wonderful piece. Uh, and it presumably would have been much, much more famous had it survived uh, the cutting of the Magnificat in 1919. But anyway, the Magnificat went and also the precis, O Lord, open thou our lips and our mouth shall show forth thy praise, which was part of the 1918 service, mirroring the start of Evensong, that went as well. So you no longer in 1919 have any real contact with Evensong and no longer any building towards the Magnificat as the set piece from the East End. You've still got the progression from the chorister to the provost, and the real innovation, I think, of 1919, which we still go with, is that in 1919, they took John 1, they took the reading, uh, the opening of St. John's Gospel, and put it as the ninth and last lesson. Before that, and all, 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 through all the Truro services, it had been there as the sixth lesson, but that finally gets moved to the ninth lesson, and that happens in 1919. So, 1919, we uh, begin the carol service, as had happened before 1918 for many years, begins with Once in Royal. But as you saw from the M.R. James, James uh, description there, it was actually done by all the boys. The solo didn't come in until the 1930s, so 1919 started like this. has a very different feel to it when you have all the boys singing it, but I feel quite sure that one of the, thing, one of the things they would have enjoyed about it is the security, the safety in numbers, uh, and that, that must at least uh, have given them some hope. As I say, the, the solo wasn't instituted until sometime in the 1930s by Boris Ord. So moving on one year to 1920, um, the so-called invitatory carol uh, was O Little Town of Bethlehem, and this O Little Town of Bethlehem stayed in that place until 1946. One of the things that you find with the King's service is that carols can sit in the same place year after year after year. And O Little Town of Bethlehem sat there from 1920 all the way up until 1946. So the service in 1920 starts with Once in Royal, then there's the famous bidding prayer, and then there's the Lord's Prayer, and then there's this invitatory carol. setting that you were expecting, but that was the setting that would have been known to congregations at the time. It's a setting by Henry Wolford Davis, who I believe was a Gresham professor at some stage in his career. The provost is nodding, he was indeed. Um, so this is a setting by Henry Wolford Davis, not the setting that we would sing now, but this is the setting that would have been sung at the time. Uh, Wolford Davis wrote it in 1905. Uh, and it was included in this beautiful book that I managed to um, procure quite recently, The Sunday School Hymnary. A number, of you, a number of you will know how much I enjoy collecting these books. This is, this is my most recent. You can look at it afterwards, by all means. 
Anyway, this is, the, this is where you find uh, Henry Wolford Davis's setting of um, O Little Town of Bethlehem from 1905. The point is it took on very quickly because by 1920 it's being used in the King's Carol service in that version. As I say, maybe not what um, you were expecting, uh, but it, is, it was at the time extremely well known. Here's the whole of the first verse. beautiful um, setting of very little. If you want a job doing properly, ask a Gresham professor. That's what you get. So, to 1928. Arthur Mann was in charge of the choir of King's College, Cambridge. Arthur Henry Mann, known affectionately and universally as Daddy, had been running the choir at King's since 1876. Okay, this is 1928, he's been running it since 1876. Mann's mission um, to improve standards of singing within King's Chapel was helped by the completion of a new building for the choir boys in 1878, so two years after Mann took over, and by the appointment of Vincent Raynell as headmaster of the choir school. Now, Raynell and Mann worked very, very well together indeed, and they fostered a secure, crucially, and challenging, equally crucially, environment which in, within which their 16 chorister charges could develop as people as well as musicians. Now, improvement in standards of choral singing in England was very much in the air at the time. You had Charles Harford Lloyd, C.H. Lloyd, at Gloucester Cathedral and later at Christchurch Cathedral in Oxford, you had John Stainer at St Paul's Cathedral in London after his move from Magdalen College, Oxford. And you had Walter Parrott, who was Stainer's successor at Magdalen and later organist at St George's Chapel, Windsor. So you have a number of magnificent choir trainers who were all very forward-looking in terms of transforming the conditions under which particularly the choristers sang and the sound which was made, and I think starting to care about the things that we care about now. Um, we take them for granted now, but things like tuning, ensemble, balance, control, all these things which we regard as the hallmarks of choral singing, this was the sort of thing that these people brought to the table. C.H. Lloyd, Stainer, Parrott, and indeed Daddy Mann, and they were all Victorian-born choirmasters. Now, Arthur Mann rarely offered praise, 
and was described as being a master of, I quote, freely expressed disparagements. Um, I obviously model myself on him to some extent. Uh, Daddy's mantra was the passionate exhortation that his singers should produce a good round tone. That was the thing that he was trying most to do, a good round tone. And from that we might be able to conclude that singing in choirs before that had maybe been a bit spindly, a bit weedy. He wanted people to sing out with this good round tone. And Mann's colourful <laughs> Sunday afternoon tea parties for the King's Choral Scholars were legendary. And indeed the affection in which Mann was held by all those who knew and worked with him was unparalleled. Now in 1928, Daddy Mann celebrated what turned out to be his last Christmas on earth by having his nine lessons service broadcast by BBC Radio. I mean, I ask you, is this what you really need after a long and distinguished service? All of a sudden, you get the microphones in for the first time. Uh, nowadays, we know how to deal with it. In 1928, this, this was a very new thing indeed. Uh, Daddy Man was indeed slowing up, and he was offered a lot of help by his de facto assistant, um, Boris Ord, who was starting to take some control of the choir. Now, the service did begin with Once in Royal, all of the boys singing it, and then followed by Eric Milner-White's bidding prayer of 1918, which, as we discussed last time, uh, was very much a memorial prayer for those that the college had lost in the Great War. So here we are in 1928, and um, a year earlier, in 1927, in the bleak midwinter, had been used as the carol after the first lesson. That was in 1927, and it stayed in that position for five carol services up to and including 1931. That's in the bleak midwinter from 1977 to 1931. So in 1928, the year we're dealing with, it was, it was in place. Now, I won't toy with you, but it will not be, I can assure you, it will not be what you're expecting. You will be expecting Christina uh, Rossetti's 1871 poem, but you will not be expecting the musical setting by the then Bishop of Oxford, the right Reverend Thomas Strong. Now, Rossetti wrote her poem uh, in the bleak midwinter in uh, 1871. It was published in a magazine in America in 1872. It was republished in 1875, but what really gave it legs was this. Christina Rossetti's brother, William Michael Rossetti, made an edition of the poetical works of Christina Georgina Rossetti, and it was published in 1904. This was what captured the attention of various composers. First off the blocks was Gustav Holst. He wrote immediately having seen this. I don't know exactly who, uh, whether Holst himself saw this volume or whether the poem was recommended to him for setting, but either way, Gustav Holst was, was off the mark in 1904 when this anthology was uh, was published, and his setting of In the Bleak Midwinter, Holst's setting of In the Bleak Midwinter, was included in the English hymnal in 1906. Harold Dark wrote his famous setting in 1909, 1909, when he was a student at the Royal College of Music, an undergraduate student, and published in 1911. And Thomas Strong's version, the version that I'm talking about now, that was included in the King's 1928 service, uh, that version was published in the Oxford Hymn Book of 1908. So you have three very important settings of a very important poem from 1904, 1908 and 1909, entirely due to the publication in London of this collection of Christina Rossetti's poems. 
Uh, and so there are these uh, settings of in the bleak midwinter hanging around in uh, 1918 and indeed in 1928 uh, any one of the three could have been chosen but the one that was chosen by Kings for five of its carol services was uh, this one by Thomas Strong. Um, here's a beautiful page from the Oxford Hymn Book uh, with its, uh, its trademark um, uh, handwriting. Anyway, here is um, Thomas Strong's setting of In the Bleak Midwinter. As I say, Thomas Strong uh, was the Bishop of Oxford. I think for the work of a musical work of a bishop, it's rather fine. setting and you can see why it was included in the King's Carol service for five years and crucially in 1928. So here we go, here's the full menu from 1928. The hymns in bold are the ones that were sung by the congregation and in the order of service it very specifically says about the congregation in which they are asked to join heartily. So this definitely was a service in which the congregation was expected to contribute so the hymns that you've got, Once in Royal, we know all about that. O Little Town of Bethlehem, in the Wolford Davis version that we heard a few minutes ago. God Rest You Merry Gentlemen, in the version that you'd expect to hear. While Shepherds Watched, in the version that you'd expect to hear. O Come All You Faithful, in the version you'd expect to hear. And Hark the Herald, in the version you'd expect to hear. Hark the Herald is uh, in many ways the most important congregational carol of the lot because that's the one that was there in 1918 at this point in the service and has remained there ever, ever since. It's the only carol that's made it into all the services and crucially it's the only one that's never moved uh, from its initial position as it were at the end. But those uh, in bold, those are your, uh, those are your congregational carols um, and these were the ones that were broadcast uh, by the BBC in 1928 on Christmas Eve. And this is, I imagine, uh, the sort of domestic scene that you would imagine uh, in 1928. Um, what a shame there isn't a, a social historian around to help us with this, but I'm, my reading of this is not really uh, concerned with um, the decor, but I'm sure others uh, can, can tell me uh, about every aspect of this photograph and what it's trying to say. I can tell you about one specific thing because it's a thing that I care about. I care about radio, I work in radio and I've building, been building radio since I was eight years old. Um, and I can tell this is a well-to-do home uh, because looking at the hi-fi. So if you just look to the right of the lady of the house, 
you will see, I'm sure some of you will recognise, the SG Brown Model H1 horn loudspeaker. Expensive bit of gear. Even more than that to its right, and I will ring it for you so you know what I'm talking about. Look at that. I mean, really. That's an AJS, four-valve battery receiver, as you know, a 1923 model, so it's pretty new. And that's the crucial thing. That's what I know about this picture. It's a four-valve set. Most people had a three-valve... Well, most people were listening on crystal sets. Some people were listening... Most people were listening on three valves. Not many people had a four-valve set. This is a very well-to-do uh, household, and these are people that clearly care passionately about radio. They would have got as good a signal in 1928 as you could get. Here's the Radio Times from that day, Christmas Eve in 1928. Uh, I've spent a lot of time in the Bodleian Library looking at the Radio Times. Once you start, it's an invaluable resource. It is just wonderful. Um, but here's the Radio Times uh, page from uh, Christmas Eve, 1928. Now, in spite, this is rather BBC, in spite of its official title of A Festival of Nine Lessons and Carols, as we know, the Radio Times billing for Monday the 24th of December, 1928, advertised it as a Christmas Eve carol service relayed from King's College Chapel, Cambridge. So that's been re-dubbed for the radio audience. And there I've enlarged it slightly and ringed it for you. So at 3.30pm on Christmas Eve 1928, 2LO London, so to understand this, there are 20 uh, local transmitters around the UK at the time. And one of these, of course, is in London, is the first one. And at the time, in 1928, it was uh, on top of Selfridges. That's where, that's where the area was put. So 2LO London, uh, which launched its signal from the top of Selfridges, um, radiated the sound of King's College Choir on 361.4 metres medium wave. So that's your medium wave signal relayed by 20 different uh, transmitters. And then a further one, 5XX in Daventry on Borough Hill in Northamptonshire was radiating on 1,562.5 metres. So that's your long wave uh, uh, transmission. So you've got 20 transmitters doing the medium wave signal, you've got one single transmitter which is all you need for the long wave signal, but the point is by then, even though it's very very early days of BBC radio, by then there was quite good coverage. I mean you can understand what I mean by that. Uh, certain places received it very well, certain people not at all, but uh, certain people were receiving it very well. And what I love about this page is one of the most beautiful coincidences that I could imagine. Uh, later, the same evening um, that, that this service was broadcast from King's for the first time, the author E.F. Benson read his pre-war ghost story, The Confession of Charles Linkworth. I'll just make that a big, bit better for you. It's seven o'clock that evening, and some of you will have got there. Edward Frederick Benson was the third son of the late Edward White Benson, who, as Bishop of Truro, had devised um, the original Truro service. So here now is his son reading on the radio on just a few hours after the King's Carol service has been broadcast. It's a wonderful and fabulous coincidence. So here's our uh, order of service again for 1928. The thing that surprises me most about this running order... Um, is uh, towards the bottom of the page there. Little Jesus, Sweetly Sleep, uh, or as you might know it, Rocking. It's called the Rocking Carol, or Rocking Little Jesus, Sweetly 
um, sleep. Uh, this is the thing that um, most uh, surprises me. We'll sing it to you first, but um, what I've done here just is I've conflated the first and second verses. So we'll start with the first verse and, and finish with the uh, second verse, but it's worth saying, uh, so these words were written by uh, Percy Dearmer. It's a Czech folk tune, uh, and Percy Dearmer wrote these words for it. Um, but in the King's service, uh, his last line, darling, darling, little man, was changed to little Jesus, God and man. For some reason, they, uh, they obviously thought that was a bit, well, I don't know what they thought about it, but they changed it from darling, darling, little man to little Jesus, God and man. But anyway, here's a composite performance of those two verses now. carol indeed and one that's still sung regularly now what surprises me is the fact that it's there at all because this um uh, this carol uh, was only published for the first time in this version in 1928 in the oxford book of carols so in other words king's was incredibly quick off the mark to get this into their service and i almost didn't believe it when i saw it uh, in that running order but it is the case um so in uh, 1928, um, you have all the things that you'd expect. John 1 is the ninth lesson. Hark the Herald uh, finishes. Um, as I say, the, the surprising thing is the inclusion of this Czech carol, which Percy Dearmer then translated, rather freely, of course, uh, translated for uh, the Oxford Book of Carols, which was published in 1928. As I say, this is why the year uh, is so important. And it has five parts to it. Um, they have a point. They're making a point. Uh, the collaborators for the uh, Oxford Book of Carols were Percy Dearmer, the, the, the Reverend Percy Dearmer, uh, Martin Shaw and Rafe Vaughan-Williams. So Shaw and Vaughan-Williams were the musical uh, contributors and Percy Dearmer looked after all the words. They'd met in collaboration in 1904 to form the English hymnal, which they published in 1906. Many, many other publications, 1926, Songs of Praise, and then in 1928, they uh, collaborate on the Oxford Book of Carols. So here we are, back to our 1928 service. So how much crossover, apart from rocking, uh, Little Jesus Sweetly Sleep, which I just said, how much crossover is there between that first King's Carol service and the Oxford Book of Carols published in the same year? Uh, well, you can see you've got a little town of Bethlehem, but... Uh, the uh, version in the Oxford Book of Carols is not the one that you've just heard. Uh, it's the one that was harmonised by Rafe Vaughan Williams. So a different tune, different harmonisation. So looks like the same, but it's different. In the bleak midwinter, uh, 
you uh, would not be of expect. We are not expecting Thomas Strong tune. We expect the Holst version. Uh, but at King's, they did the Thomas Strong version. So yet again, there is no Marriott. The words are the same, but the tunes are different between King's and the Oxford Book of Carols. I saw three ships, same tune, but in the Oxford Book of Carols, it's arranged by Rafe Vaughan Williams, not by Wolford Davis as at King's. God rest you, merry gentlemen, this does marry up, and one of the two versions given in the Oxford Book of Carols is the one that they would have sung uh, in King's. The Holly and the Ivy, yes, it's in King's, and it's also in the Oxford Book of Carols, but in the Oxford Book of Carols, it's arranged by Martin Shaw, not by Wilford Davis. Uh, in Dulce Jubilo, yes, that's in the Oxford Book of Carols, but in two entirely different versions to the one that King's would have sung, the one we now know uh, by Purcell. And crucially, the Oxford Book of Carols does not contain at all O Come All Ye Faithful or Hark the Herald. Uh, one thing that it does include is While Shepherds Watched, few I hear you say, but again, not in a version that you would know. The version, the, the, the version that you, uh, you would know is what they would have sung at King's, but the version that they put in the Oxford Book of Carols was this one. While shepherds watched their flocks by night, all Now, in the preface of the Oxford Book of Carols, Reverend Percy Dearmer gave a potted history of carols and was very dismissive of the modern carols that had appeared in Bramley and Stainer's three series of Christmas carols, new and old, from the 1860s to the 1870s. Dearmer was having none of it. He regarded it as over-sentimental, late 19th century trash. He wanted nothing to do with it, apart from one tune. He said, of these, little perhaps, except the tune by John Goss, deserved to survive. Now, that's music to our ears because John Goss was the first director of music at St Luke's Chelsea, so a bit of a hero of ours. Um, but Dearmer and Vaughan Williams and Martin Shaw loved this tune that they're talking about. It isn't in the Oxford Book of Carols because uh, John Goss died in 1880, so he was still just in copyright in 1928, so they couldn't include it, but Dearmer was very clear, saying, if I were going to include anything in the 19th century, it would be this tune and we'll now sing it. So this is a bit of an anthem, as it were, for St Luke's.
Uh, as you'll know, and those of you who've been attending for some years, the point about carols is they'll take anything from anywhere. They'll take any words, they'll take any tune, what they can get, they'll marry up a tune with melody, they'll change everything. It, it really is an extraordinarily flexible thing, the carol. But what rarely happens is a carol going the other way and going, as it were, into the public consciousness with different words. We can quote the trivial ones. We three kings of Orient are, one in a bicycle, one in a car, that sort of thing. Or 1936, uh, Hart Held Angels sing uh, Mrs. Simpson's Pinched Our King. So occasionally it does happen, but they tend to be trivial examples. But here's a very, very untrivial example. These are the words of Kay Sutcliffe. Uh, Kay Sutcliffe is uh, still alive. She's a wife of a Kent miner, Philip Sutcliffe, and a member of the Elsham Miners' Wives Support Group, which was formed in the early 1970s. So come the 12th of March 1984, which many of you remember, 12th of March 1984, and the Kent Miners' Strike, they already had a group that could be resurrected. And Kay Sutcliffe wrote these words. Now, originally, she intended, I think, it to be sung to O Tannenbaum, O, o Christmas Tree, uh, but then it was suggested by the producer of Coop, Boys and Simpson. He said, no, 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 this is going to work really well to that John Goss tune. And that is indeed how it was sung in 84 uh, by many people at the time. examples of a carol travelling back into, as it were, a folk tradition. In his preface to the Oxford Book of Carols, P Percy Dearmer was really on his soapbox here. I mean, this meant a lot to They'd been collaborating for a long time, Vaughan Williams, Dearmer and Martin Shaw, but this was, this was it. And in the preface to the Oxford Book of Carols, Dearmer tells it as he thinks it is. Carols are songs with a religious impulse that are simple, hilarious, popular and modern. And I think Dearmer's point here is that you can and should be serious about being happy. It was one of his points. It's, it's, if, you're not, if you're not serious about being happy, it's superficial seriousness. You can be serious about being happy. Uh, Vaughan Williams's kick uh, was that m music of the ordinary people should be valued. And that was why Vaughan Williams went out and looked for all these folk songs. He was utterly convinced that the music of the people was the most important music there was, and that's why he did what he did with the English hymnal, the tunes in Songs of Praise, and the tunes in the Oxford Book of Carols. Um, uh, and Dearmer, uh, apart from 
imagining that you should be uh, serious about being happy, uh, was also convinced that liturgy, in other words, church services, should be as beautiful as they possibly can be, given what you've got. So you work with what you've got, but you try to make everything beautiful. That's right down to sort of the architecture and the hangings and the tapestries and the music, that all this should be as beautiful as possible. Um, So the point that Deermer and Shaw uh, wanted to prove with the Oxford Book of Carols was it really wanted very little to do with what they saw as overblown sentimentality. So a lot of the congregational carols that you might expect to find in a carol book of 1928 do not appear. As I say, most obviously, O Come All You Faithful, Hark the Herald, they're getting nowhere near that. And when the 19th century does get a look in, uh, it was in the shape of The Crown of Roses, which was set to music by the Russian composer uh, Tchaikovsky. Um, just before uh, we sing you that, here's the, um, uh, here's the billing from this year. Uh, this is the My Radio Times arrived yesterday, and this is what it says. It's an hour and a half service. Percy Dearmer in the Oxford Book of Carol says, well, you might want it to be an hour, absolutely maximum hour and a quarter. Well, here we are now, it's an hour and a half, and if you listen to the repeat the day after it's uh, two hours, I'm not sure Dearmer would have approved, <laughs> but he would have approved of it being as beautiful as it can be uh, and being serious about being happy, but the length um, he would not have liked. So um, the very last number, as I say, in the uh, Oxford Book of Carols is... Uh, the Crown of Roses, uh, which is uh, set to music by Tchaikovsky. When Jesus Christ was yet a child, he had a garden small and wild, wherein he cherished roses fair and wove them into garlands there. But that's really not the story. So, this, tra this, this carol travelled and it travelled well. Uh, it began life, top left, it began life as a poem, Roses and Thorns, in a collection called Songs of Summer, and Roses and Thorns was published in Boston, Massachusetts in 1857 by the American Richard Henry Stoddart. So that's how it starts as an American poem. Stoddart later then changed the title from Roses and Thorns to Legend, and then the verses were translated into Russian in 1877 by Alexei Pleschev. Plescheyev's poem was then set to music by Tchaikovsky, initially as a song for voice and piano. This was published as Legenda, the fifth of Tchaikovsky's 16 songs for children in 1884. Five years later, Tchaikovsky himself arranges the song for four-part choir. And indeed, by a happy coincidence, it was given at the Carnegie Hall the very night that New York's Carnegie Hall opened in 1891. One of the pieces that was heard in that first concert at Carnegie Hall was the legend by Tchaikovsky, by now in its choral version. And then subsequently, it was translated by the young Geoffrey Deermer. Now, Geoffrey Deermer is the young son of Percy Deermer, and Geoffrey Deermer at the time was an undergraduate student when he translated uh, this work. Now, First, there are two things. First of all, I believe it to be touchingly beautiful. It really is. 
but secondly, you'd want to anthologise it anyway, just for its staying power. Something that starts off as an American poem, goes over to Russia, gets translated to Russian, becomes a children's song for voice and piano, then you have it for four-part choir here, it performed at the Carnegie Hall back in America, and then it comes by dint of Dirmer's young son, it comes uh, into the Oxford Book of Carols via uh, the English Carol Book. It really has a, a remarkable pedigree. But what I think is most remarkable, and you don't have to agree, me, uh, agree with me here, but um, I think what's re most remarkable is by the time that Dirmer gets his hands on it, Geoffrey Dirmer gets his hands on it, it's better than when it left. Stoddart, they took the thorns and made a crown and placed it on his shining head, and where the roses should have shone were little drops of blood instead. Dirmer. 21-year-old Dirmer, then of the thorns they made a crown, and with rough fingers pressed it down, till on his forehead, fair and young, red drops of blood like roses sprung. Now that, to me, is poetry. It's remarkable how far that carol travelled into Russian and then out again. And when it comes out, wow. Um, and uh, so we'll finish by um, uh, singing you this. Uh, the other thing which I don't want to dwell on, but I do want to make a, another case for Geoffrey Dearmer, is that and I, one of the reasons I haven't given you the whole text of the American poem is because it's rabidly anti-Semitic. When it was translated into Russian, it remained rabidly anti-Semitic. When it came into Geoffrey Dearmer's hands, that was all excised. So he did many, many things. Apart from writing beautiful poetry, he actually brought people up to date and told them how to behave. Uh, and this is the very last number in the Oxford Book of Carols from 1928. 